You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi there, I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. If you've listened to this podcast before, welcome back. And if you're joining me for the first time, thank you for choosing Out of Office. The name of your podcast does all sorts of havoc on people's calendars. So I'm like, who's out of office? (laughs) Wait, am I out of office? Who's out of office? (laughs) Many of you may know this voice. It's that of Sal Khan, who I am thrilled to say is my next guest. He's the founder of Khan Academy and the voice on most of the videos by the group. So the first thing I like to do is I don't like to divide by a decimal. Khan Academy is a nonprofit with a mission to provide anyone anywhere in the world a free top-notch education. The Academy produces online tutorials. They come in the form of short videos about topics that range from basic addition and subtraction for young kids to complicated calculus. The videos are simple, with language and graphics that are easy to follow, so it's no surprise that they've been downloaded millions of times. Sal started his journey by tutoring his cousin. Now he wants to make sure that not one child is denied an education because he or she can't afford it. Even one student, I I don't think it's it's acceptable if money is the reason why they can't learn. That might be the student who cures cancer for all of us. (laughs) Like, selfishly, we should, we want to make sure that every human being is able to reach their potential. And the social benefit to society is off the charts for that. In this episode, we talk about his values and how that shapes his decision to keep Khan Academy free. What he, the poster boy of online learning, thinks about remote learning. If I had to pick for myself or my own children or anyone else's children between an amazing in-person experience with an awesome teacher versus the best distance learning online, who knows what, I would pick the amazing in-person experience, even if the, the whole technology is a stick in some sand, I would still take that. He talks about his surprise when he found out about a dad who was talking about using Khan Academy in its early days. We're talking about Bill Gates. He was being interviewed and he was asked, what are you excited about? And he says, well, there's this new site I use called Khan Academy. I've been using it myself. I think he said to learn about like finance, which blew my mind. And, and, and I've been using it with my kids um, on their studies. And I remember showing my wife that video that night. I'm like, well, what do I do now? Do I call him? What, what is the protocol here? I don't think I can find his number. And we talk about mentors, leadership, the social return on education, daily meditation, and why Sal will never stop recording videos himself. At the end of the day, when I can sit quietly in the walk-in closet that I'm in right now and I can geek out on uh, chemistry or biology or calculus or world history, uh, that is when I am in my, in my element. 
Here's my conversation with Sal Khan. Sal, welcome to Out of Office. Great to be here. What's this year been like for Khan Academy? Yeah, we first caught wind that it was going to be an interesting year last February where we had a teacher uh, in South Korea telling us that he was using Khan Academy to keep his kids learning through their school closures. And I remember thinking at the time how wild it was that a whole country would close their schools because of a virus. And then we know how that turned out by uh, March of 2020, the U.S. and most, most of the world had shut down physical schooling. And it was one of those moments where we kind of looked left and looked right and said, I think this is Khan Academy's you know, we got to step up now uh, because people were going to need something that is accessible, trusted, covers all the major subjects and grades, usable by teachers with teacher tools, but also easily usable by students and families. And so we saw our traffic increase by a factor of three uh, in those first few weeks. Normally, we have about 30 million learning minutes per day. We saw that go to about 85, 90 million learning minutes per day. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, above and beyond, just trying to keep the site up and performant. Uh, we started accelerating a whole series of programs to help help people understand how to learn, not just using Khan Academy, but generally uh, in these very constrained times. So that's where the webinars, we started putting out lesson plans and uh, daily calendars. And we've just continued on that journey to even till now. And I suspect for the, for the next many more months, uh, because a lot of what Khan Academy has always been about is how do you make sure that you can fill in student gaps, have them learn at their own time and pace, that learning is not bound by time or space. And all of these ideas have never been more relevant and I think will continue to be very relevant even after the pandemic. But, you know, there's been such um, a debate now about remote learning and online learning. Of course, nothing replicates the learning in a classroom. So how do you see the role Khan Academy can play in this environment so, so to be clear, and I, you know, I say this as someone who's sometimes viewed as the poster child for online learning. If I had to pick for myself, for my own children, or anyone else's children, between an amazing in-person experience with an awesome teacher versus the best distance learning online, who knows what? I would pick the amazing in-person experience, even if the the whole technology is a stick in some sand. I would still take that. Now, in in normal times, the ideal is not to have to pick, that to use both. Uh, have the physical experience that has all of the human intangibles, but then we have these other pedagogical aspirations of we want people to learn at their own time and pace. We want to make sure that people can fill in their gaps, that students have agency, teachers have better information on where their kids are, and that's where the technology can be useful. So the ideal is both. Now, with the pandemic, we have this strange set of circumstances on us uh, where we couldn't be in the same room together. And so Yes, it is not. It is suboptimal for most students. Although, if we did not have technology, it would have been even worse. <laughs> yes. uh, because then we would have had no learning. Yeah. Uh, but what we're seeing is a lot more folks are leaning, obviously, on Khan Academy. And then when you think about the video conference, there's ways to do it well, and there's ways to do it less well. And we have seen teachers have good success. Once again, it's not a, quite the same thing as being in a classroom together. But in situations where they're really pulling kids out of the screen, putting them into breakouts making them stretch and do something silly or fun every 15, 20 minutes, uh, the kids are getting engaged. And, you know, the, the secret is that's actually a best practice even when you're in a physical classroom. Yeah. In a physical classroom, some kids are physically there, but we all, we've all been there where you're not necessarily mentally there because no, you're, you're looking out. at the clock, you're <laughs> yeah. bored. Exactly. Uh, and, I, w you know, if there's a silver lining is some of these practices of leveraging breakouts and putting it, making it more interactive on video conference hopefully become even more mainstream uh, once people get back in person. You know, of course, one important part of the classroom experience is 
is the values you can get from teachers, right? How do you think Khan Academy can help with that, given that, you know, we may continue to do online learning for a long time. We are emerging from the pandemic, but different parts of the world, it's going to happen at different times. Can Khan Academy really play a role there? Yeah, I think for sure it's a role. You know, when there's a spectrum of circumstances, you have extreme circumstances, even pre-pandemic, where, you know, rural parts of India, for example, where people might not have access to school or the school they have access to might not have advanced courses or even if they don't, even for the regular courses, they're not taught at a rigorous level. That's where Khan Academy can really raise the floor, where kids can get practice, feedback, uh, instruction at a really world-class level. Uh, but the uh, ideal circumstances are every teacher will tell you they have a class of 30 students. Those 30 students have different gaps, different needs. A teacher wishes they could replicate themselves or have 29 teaching assistants so that they could personalize to each student. That's not economically viable. and so. Tools like Khan Academy can help the teacher meet that need. One, students can get a lot of practice feedback at their own time and pace. Uh, the teachers can monitor where they are. When you get to class time, it liberates the class to be more interactive. Teachers can do more focused interventions on the kids who need the help. And when you talk about values, you know, there's a whole series of values that hopefully kids learn through education, but probably the most powerful one is the, the ability to learn or, or learn how to learn. And I'm a big fan. I teach quadratic equations or calculus on Khan Academy. But what's even more important than that is the metacognitive muscle of when you're 30 years old and you need to reskill, how do you then learn when you don't have someone overlooking you? You know, I always say the real impact of a teacher is not when the kids are in the room with them. It's when the students are no longer in the room with them. That the real, you know, the, the amazing, we, we've seen teachers who really teach the students to be, to have agency and to have that ability to start pulling knowledge. And, uh, you know, that's what Khan Academy is built for. Obviously, it can be used in a framework where teachers can direct students, but we always design it in a way that the students themselves can start to take more and more ownership. I want to go back to the beginning, and some people may not know how Khan Academy uh, was started. And it's because your cousin needed a little bit of help with her math. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, 2004. At the time, my original background was in tech. I had now started working at a hedge fund. I was a year out of business school. And uh, my family from New Orleans was visiting me up in Boston after our wedding. And uh, Nadia was having trouble in math. I had found from her mother, Nasruddanti. And uh, I offered to tutor Nadia when she went back to New Orleans. And she agreed. So every day after work, after school for her, I would get on the phone with her. And we would use, we ended up using Yahoo Doodle at the time to see <laughs> each other's writing so we could write these these math equations. And slowly but surely, she got caught up with her class, even a little ahead of her class. Then I became what I call a tiger cousin and called up her school and said, I really think Nadia should be able to retake the placement exam from last year. They said, who are you? I said, I'm her cousin. <laughs> and they let her. And Really? Oh, it worked. Yeah. And the same Nadia who was you know being put into a slower math track was then put into an advanced math track. And so I was hooked. I started tutoring her younger brothers. Word spread in my family. Free tutoring is going on. And before I knew it, I was working with 10, 15 cousins and I was writing software for them and <laughs> making videos for them. And that was, the, that was the genesis of Khan Academy. And then I know that you started tutoring more and more kids and soon tens of thousands of people were watching your tutorials. But at the same time, your web hosting software was costing you $50 a month and you were running your business from a closet while still holding on to your day job. 
So what was the tipping point? When did you realize that this is for real and I should quit my day job? Yeah, well, it, you know, as you can tell, it was a bit of a journey because 2004 is when I started, 2000, I started tutoring family members. 2005, I started writing software for them. 2006, I started making videos for them. But it wasn't 2000, until 2009 until I seriously considered doing this full time. And, you know, the, the, I, I always defended this in my own mind emotionally saying this is a hobby this isn't a business i eventually set this up as a not for profit because i saw how many people around the world were sending me letters about how this was helping them how this was the tutor that their family couldn't afford this was giving them access to a rigorous course that their local school didn't have or teachers t t uh, writing letters to me saying how much it was helping their students or in certain cases even the teachers think about ways to deliver the lessons or give practice to their students and so i said okay this just has to be out there for as many people as possible by 2009 there were a few about a hundred thousand folks who were using it and you know i sat down with my wife we looked at our finances we were saving money to buy a house <laughs> out here in silicon valley which is not a a small proposition uh but it felt like i, I should work on this uh and so because a social return on something like this, I said, hey, if there's 100,000 people using it now, maybe 100 million could use it one day. And you know, obviously now more yeah. than 100 people, million people do use it, but maybe one day a billion yeah. people could use it. And uh, the social return on investment is almost unlimited. So I, I was delusionally optimistic that surely some philanthropist will realize this and fund uh, Khan Academy. And so that's when I quit the job in 2009. I mean, 2007 to 2009 was this period where I, I kind of kept thinking about it. But by 2009, I, I, I took the plunge. When you were thinking about it, did you at any time think about converting this, what you were calling your hobby, into a business and not going down the non-for-profit route? Yeah, you know, the, 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 the initial instinct was to be not-for-profit, that it's like an institution for the world. But living out here in Silicon Valley, and as we started getting usage and people started learning about us, some venture capitalists did reach out, good people, and and they said, hey, I'll, we'll write a check right now. You can quit your job and start this business. We think there's a lot of potential here. And, you know, the first conversations were always pretty exciting. But then the second or third, it was always around, well, how, we can make this stuff free, but we'll charge for that or we'll put ads there. Or we'll put a paywall for this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I wanted to do. You know, whenever I thought about any of those frictions, I thought about that kid who wrote me an email saying that this was the tutor his family couldn't afford. And yeah. if even, frankly, one student doesn't benefit from this because there's a paywall, then that's a tragedy in my mind. And so, you know, there wasn't really a model. <laughs> Down in Silicon Valley, people don't understand not-for-profit much, uh, although there's, there was Wikipedia as a bit of an example as well. Uh, but, you know, I figured you, you live once, might as well swing for the fences and see if this could actually turn into... Uh, the ideal. Uh, so that was a, a bit of a gamble. <laughs> <laughs> Sal, why was it so important to you that not even one kid should be excluded because of a paywall? Well, imagine if you're that kid. Uh, you want to tap into your potential. You want to learn something. I think as a society, we all have the value. I believe most of us have the value that anyone who wants to learn something should be able to learn it. That's what the public school system is for. And, and frankly, that could be the student you know, it, it might just, by them accessing that material, it might allow them to engage in their studies, graduate from high school, go to college, support their family, 
help empower their village, which by itself would have a, a, a immediate impact, amazing impact. Or that might be the student who cures cancer for all of us. <laughs> like mm-hmm. selfishly, we should mm-hmm. we want to make sure that every human being is able to reach their potential. And the social benefit to society is off the charts for that. Uh, that, you know, when someone gets their education, they're less likely to go into destructive angles. They're more likely to be able to produce, uh, be productive members of society. Pretty much any other problem you look at in society, whether it's economic inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality, education is a big part of that. Uh, and and so, yeah, you, even one student, I, I don't think is it's accept, it's acceptable if, 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 you know, money is the reason why they can't learn. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious about your own education, and I'm curious about how your own schooling has influenced your views on education. You went to a very diverse school, and you've said that at school, some kids were out of jail, others were headed to top universities. Tell us a little bit about your school. Oh, yeah, it's interesting that, that that I said that in some interview and it's gotten quoted in Wikipedia and other places. So it's, it's interesting that <laughs> it's people... all over the place when you when you read up on you, it comes up. Yes, exactly. The, the you know, I went I grew up in I was born and raised in Metairie, Louisiana, which is uh, right outside of New Orleans. And, you know, New Orleans is a very, very diverse place. And, you know, it's not known for its its schooling. And, and I went, you know, I went through the public school system and the school system, the school, the high school that I was at, Grace King High School, it was in, in our school district considered a, a decent school. And but what it did, and this happens in a lot of American schools, is they create little silos. They had silos for, uh, frankly, the kids like me, where, you know, we would go to math competitions and we would be able to take more advanced courses. And so in our class of 300, 400 kids, there would be about 20 or 30 of us who actually got I would say quite good support and had access to really good resources uh, for the most part. Uh, but then you also had peers. You know, there was a couple of kids in my class who had ankle bracelets who had been in and out of juvenile hall. Uh, there were there was definitely, you know, a lot of busing. And my family wasn't wealthy. My my mom was a cashier at, at convenience stores most of my uh, most of my childhood. So it was a very diverse neighborhood. The school district there there were people in the district that lived near the lake and were quite well healed and then there were people who were um not not so well healed i actually was probably on that side of the railroad tracks now that i think about it who would you say i'm curious about your value system who would you say has had the greatest influence on your value system your deep belief that um 
education is an equalizer and every child in the world should have an equal right to education? Yeah, that's a good question. I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably an amalgamation of a bunch of people who've influenced me. My older sister, Farah, who is three years older than me, she was, you know, growing up, if you, if you were to go back in time to, say, 1984, and you were to interview my mother on what she thought of her children, she would have said, oh, Farah, she's the good student. She's the one that, you know, mm-hmm. she's bright. Yes, yeah, Sal, we don't know. You know he's, <laughs> he's a bit of a, you know, the we we we're not sure whether <laughs> studies are his thing. Uh, but because I had my, you know, my sister actually used to teach me. She's the one that taught me how to read. And because she was so bright, when, when I went into any class, my sister, the teachers remembered my sister from three years before. And when they learned that I was her brother, they would always say, okay, there must be something here. Like, let's, <laughs> let's give him the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. So I think my sister, and she was always an autodidact. So I think that was a very powerful influence. I think, you know, my mother to give her credit, is a very strong and very principled personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there is a little bit of a, you know, and my gra- her father, my, my grandfather was a poet and he was, uh, you know, he participated in kind of the, you know, the, it, it, the revolutionary movement in India back in the 40s and the 30s and 40s. And uh, so I think there's a little bit of a strand of, you know, principled, <laughs> principled action um, that, that, that exists that exists in my family. And then, you know, I've had the benefit of in my career having really great leaders, managers. My first boss, Thomas Curian, I, he probably doesn't remember this, but I remember him telling me one day when I was kind of talking about the corporate politics and it was sometimes demoralizing. He's like, look, Sal, every day you just got to show up and make the world a little bit better than the, than the day before. And I found that incredibly inspiring. And it is true. At the end of the day, if you have enough you know, money to put food on the table, support your family, beyond that, money doesn't really give a lot of happiness. It really is a sense of purpose, and it's really a sense that, that you, can, you can hopefully at least have a chance at making a positive dent in the universe. Speaking of leaders, one of the people who took an early interest in Khan Academy was Bill Gates. In fact, I believe he used uh, one of your videos to explain a concept to his uh, daughter. That must have been intimidating to find out Bill Gates was doing that. Oh, yeah. And I found out of it completely randomly where an early funder of Khan Academy was at a conference and she started texting me and or she started texting me saying, I'm at a conference. Bill Gates is on stage last 10 minutes talking about Khan Academy. And I was like, what is she talking about? And and so I, I immediately f- I found footage of that event and uh, he was being interviewed and he was asked, what are you excited about? And he says, well, there's this new site I use called Khan Academy. I've been using it myself. He, I think he said to learn about like finance, which blew my oh. mind. And, <laughs> and, and I've been using it with my kids um, on their studies. And, and, and not only had he used it, but he knew a lot about it. He's like, there's this one guy. He used to be a hedge fund analyst. And Wow, he had done his homework. Yeah, he'd done his homework. It was surreal. I've, I've later found out that he was spending, he spent many hours on it. And and I remember showing my wife that video that night. I'm like, well, what do I do now? Do I call him? What, what's yeah. the protocol here? I don't think I can find his number. <laughs> but then his team reached out a few weeks later. And you know, they said, we'd love to fly you up to Seattle if you have some time. And I was looking at my calendar for the month, completely blank. So I said, yeah, I think I have time. I can you know, have to cut my nails, do some laundry. But I can, <laughs> I can, I can meet, time to meet Bill Gates. But yeah, that, that, you know, he's someone that was a, kind of an icon in my life as someone who's wanted to go into tech and entrepreneurship, you know, at, at different stages of my life. And so, yeah, the first time I, I met him, it was, it was surreal where, you know, 20% of my brain is talking and the other 80% yeah. is like, that's Bill Gates. <laughs> that's Bill Gates. Don't mess this up, Sal. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't embarrass yourself. 
what's he like? What's he like to talk to? What's he like? You know, well, so, some of what folks would imagine, I think, are true. He's incredibly, you know, he is he is one of the few people I know. Like, I pride myself in being able to go deep in many different fields, and I, I teach a lot of these different fields on Khan Academy. Yeah. But he is someone that can go toe-to-toe with a PhD in almost any field. Uh, and he does this. He works in global health. If you want to talk vaccines, yeah. he can go as deep with you as Fauci can. You know, if he if you want to talk mm-hmm. about education, he can go as deep as you want. If you want to talk about nuclear uh, power plants, he can go as deep <laughs> as anyone. <laughs> so, so he is incredible that way. I think the thing that probably most people don't appreciate is, you know, I, I've now over the last 10 years have had many interactions with him and, and know him quite well. And he, one, he's, he's, he's really funny. He has this like, he has this funny sense of humor about, about things. And the other thing is he is so, he has no ego about the impact he has, he wants to have in the world. I, you know, I, I know people, I don't know, maybe they'd be surprised to hear this and maybe early in his life when he, when, you know, Microsoft was growing dramatically, maybe he was more driven by ambitions and all of this, but you know, in, in my interactions in, in the last 10 years, he's him and Melinda are just so focused on what's going to have the most positive impact on the world. And it's it's refreshing uh, to, you know, to, to see that. Um, and, you know, when, whenever I meet is he's always pushing me. How do we know this is reaching the kids who need it most? How do we have mm-hmm. the evidence that it's working for them? How do we reach more of the kids who need it? How do we support their families better? So that's always a conversation. Well, you've certainly caught their attention, but you've also caught the attention of Elon Musk. And earlier this year, he made a donation. He donated $5 million to Khan Academy. What does it take to attract the attention of these people, Bill Gates, Elon Musk? You know, it's interesting, and I will give the disclaimer, because sometimes when people hear Bill Gates or Elon Musk, they think, oh, Khan Academy has more money than it needs. We need... No, we, I know we... you're in deficit, and I was just <laughs> coming to that. Like, how do you have support from Elon Musk and Bill Gates and still be in deficit? Well, well, well you know, I, I always point out our budget is the budget of a large high school. It's about $60 million a year, but clearly our impact <laughs> is a global one. Um, and yeah. the, the, the world spends $5 trillion a year in education. So the social return is very high on Khan Academy. So we have donors of all levels. You know, Elon Musk is another person who I've always looked up to. I've had the opportunity of meeting him several times. You know, back in 2011, there was an event that we were both kind of the the guests of honor, so to speak, at this event, the Churchill Club. And actually, was the first time I met him. And that's actually, I, I didn't know much about him then. I was like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, he's doing electric cars. That's cool. Oh, he's doing a rocket company. What? You know, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's, that's cool. going to work. And uh, <laughs> he's, and, 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 and but then obviously they both worked and are working incredibly well. And, and then in 2013, I interviewed him. He came to our office and if that, that one's available on YouTube. So first of all, I, I just want to thank Elon for coming. Sorry to be a bit late. Um, oh no. I just came from the Tesla factory on, in Fremont. Yes. Is it, was it something wrong? Did there's, you, there's always something wrong. Did you have to like, at any given point. you know, this, we lost touch, uh, but I've always followed him closely. And anytime that I felt like backing away from a big goal. I've always thought of what he's trying to do. I'm like, nope, we got to still try to educate the whole world and educate him as <laughs> if he's going to colonize Mars and electrify transportation yeah. and build tunnels to <laughs> ease congestion. Khan Academy has got to work on educating the world. Uh, but honestly, this this donation that you're talking about, it came out of the blue. Uh, we, just, <laughs> we, we just got an email from his foundation saying... Um, Elon wants to give five million dollars to Khan Academy. What? What's what? Give us the wiring instructions. <laughs> no way! It was as simple as that. 
we, we gave the wiring instructions and then we uh and then we started interfacing with with his with his with his foundation but he's another person you know when i when i spent time with him in 2013 and actually even over the years we've been in the green room for a couple of conferences where we were both speaking i've just always i've always been inspired by both he he's completely driven by making the world a better place and a cooler place and and a more interesting place and he's completely not driven like he views money completely as just a means to an end uh, to build rockets, colonize Mars, you know, make the human <laughs> human race fault tolerant and redundant, and uh, get off of you know get off of uh, fossil fuels. You're a nonprofit. You're not driven by money. You're still in deficit. What do you define as success? What, according to you, will make Khan Academy a success, or makes Khan Academy a success already? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I've I've always told myself. There's the stuff that you can get impact in the short term and feel good about that. And then you should have big aspirations long term. So even when I was tutoring Nadia and that, you know, there's one student, I would tell myself if I can just help Nadia's life, that's more than worth my time. And so that's it's worth doing. But then maybe if I learn how to do it to scale, that can be even better. Uh, so I have the same thought now. Khan Academy this past year had 12 billion learning minutes. So a lot of impact, a lot of people learning yeah. through through Khan Academy and however you want to measure the impact of that, the social return on of Khan Academy is actually in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, off of a 60 million a year investment. So, you know, I think, you know, people like Elon Musk or the Bill Gates of the world, they understand, you know, return on investment. And they see that if they're going to put philanthropic dollars to work, there's very few things that have as much impact and scale as Khan Academy. So anyone else listening, oh, you know, I'd love, love to talk. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I see success you know, when I'm 70 years old, 80 years old, and, you know, where I want to see Khan Academy is that a billion people, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion people, all people saying Khan Academy played an essential role in my ability to reach my potential and access to material, learning, uh, being able to stay engaged in it, and then connecting that learning to credentials so that I could get a job or get into college or get into higher education. Uh, you know, I, I, I see that as the potential. I want to increase by a factor of 10 or a factor of 100 the number of people who can truly participate in the 21st century, the number of people who can find uh, cures for diseases like we were talking about or uh, solve climate change or whatever else. There's such a multiplier effect here. And, you know, I think we can't shy away from from trying to be bold. By the way, what is Nadia doing now? The cousin you tutored? <laughs> <laughs> I tell her there's a lot of pressure on her to do well. She's in a clinical psychology PhD program. She wants to become a clinical psychologist. She's uh, 20 eight years old, 20, 28 or 29 years old now. You know, I've watched so many of your videos. Like I said, I have kids and we've watched a lot of Khan Academy videos together. Do you still find time to record videos yourself? And do you enjoy that part? Oh, it's one of the parts of the job that I never will give up because uh, I find so much uh, joy in, in, in that creative exercise. Obviously, you know, we're a 200 person organization now. I have to fundraise. I have to manage. I have to there's a lot of things and, and I, I'm, I, I do all of it, you know, as well as I can because the impact is so large. But at the end of the day, when I can sit quietly in the walk-in closet that I'm in right now and I can geek out on uh, chemistry or biology or calculus or world history, uh, that is when I am in my, in my element. So just yesterday, I made five videos. Uh, today, mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance this morning to make one yet. I, 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 I have ambitions of making two or three you know, to talk about the intuition of behind matrices and determinants. That's my topic for the day. 
but no, I, I love I love <laughs> that part of my job. Is there any particular subject you enjoy the most? I, I'm one of these people who gets excited about whatever's in front of me. So I I, I I am excited about it all. And sometimes when there's a subject that the first time I got exposed to it in school, I'm like, eh, it didn't really resonate that with me. I, I enjoy digging into those even more because I view it as a challenge because I know that there is a way of looking at that subject that is actually quite exciting. And um, that, that actually is a bit of a, a fun challenge. I know you're an incredibly busy man, but do you find time for yourself, some me time on a daily basis? How do you sort of uh, take a step back from everything that you're doing? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm a big believer that you, if you don't have balance, you're just going to burn yourself out. And so I'm pretty intense during the work day. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a mercenary with my time. Uh, you know, I try to squeeze out productivity in every like 30 second increment. But, you know, I do like during COVID, I've been doing all when I can. I do a lot of my meetings while I walk. That's where I get outside, get fresh air. I get exercise. Mm -hmm. um, I meditate every day, 30 minutes a day. That makes a huge difference for me. And, and I, I make sure that uh, by 6, 6.30 in the evening, I try to shut down my work brain and spend time with the family and, my, you know, and, and invest in that. And, and, you know, as much as possible on the weekends, friends and family, you know, prioritize that. How long have you been meditating? I've been meditating seriously for about three years now, and it's been transformational. You know, I don't want to turn into some type of guru telling everyone. No, but I'm curious. I, I want to know how it's transformed you. Well, you know, I, I, I found uh, in 2015, 2016, I was getting a little anxious, especially in planes. I was getting claustrophobic. And obviously, I was having to travel a lot, give talks and, yeah. and raise money. I mean, I ne I've never really enjoyed tr planes, <laughs> but it was getting worse. I was getting, you know, and it was it was affecting me. Anyone who's who's felt claustrophobia or anxiety, you know, knows it's not a great feeling. And mm -hmm. it was actually a board member who had the same issue, and he had to travel a ton for his job, who said, hey, Sal, have you thought about meditating? And I was like, well, if it's worked for you, I'll try it out. And so I started doing it. And, um, you know, after about a month, I, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of clear now. I'm not, I'm not feeling any of those. And then I just, it just uh, improved my mood. It, it made me just less triggerable. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I was sleeping better. I wouldn't. I wouldn't obsess about things as much. I still obsess about things every now and then. Uh, you know, you can imagine for someone who's who's made thousands of videos, I can have an obsessive personality. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> the, but no, it's 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 been really uh, transformational for me. It's I just view it as you know, brushing my teeth or taking a shower now is just something that you you got to do to 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 keep to keep your your mind in a really good place. And Sal, what's your favorite thing to do when you're out of office? You know, I think uh, goof around with the my 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 wife and kids. You know, we uh, you know do goofy. Dancing. How old are your kids? They are twelve, nine, and six. That's always fun. I like to play guitar, sing, sing. You know, sing around the campfire with them. Actually, COVID's been fun. We have a fire pit, so we've been spending a lot of time outside of the fire pit. Uh, you know, singing songs with the guitar. That that's pretty fun. Great, thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing Khan Academy go from strength to strength. Great. Thanks so much, Malika. That was my conversation with Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I clearly did. Remember, you can check out other episodes of Out of Office. We're on Twitter, on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.